Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtues for the Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. My name is Nick Zuma and your host for this series exploring the ethical dimensions of COVID-19. You can find all previous episodes on the Notre Dame Australia website, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, where you can listen to our researchers weigh in on a variety of topics relating to ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, ethics may be broadly described as a pursuit of the good life, which encompasses good conduct or doing what is good, right and just for oneself and others, but it isn't always easy to ascertain what is right and just to do. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrown up what is often referred to in ethics as a world of competing sorrows. To help us think through some of the ethical complexities and ethical decision-making, we need an array of expertise, including ethical expertise. So for this episode, we asked world-renowned ethicist and IES affiliate, Professor Margaret Somerville, to join us. Professor Somerville has a distinguished national and international publishing and speaking record and is a recipient of various awards, including the Order of Australia. Professor Somerville is also Chair of Bioethics at Notre Dame, Australia. Earlier this week, we met at Margot's home to discuss ethical decision-making in the context of COVID-19. Margot, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Nick. I read a recent piece that, that you wrote in the Catholic Weekly, and you mentioned some of the ethical decisions that we're faced with during COVID. One important starting point, you say, is that we can address ethics in this kind of scenario in, in such a way that we're all in this together. And so I take this as a really positive starting point. So I thought a, a way perhaps we could, we could begin this conversation is if you could mention what you think have been some of the positive ethical behaviours you've seen during this pandemic. Well, the all in this together is important because usually in ethics, we've got an ethical issue because we disagree about what is and is not ethical. Mm -hmm. And so we're very used to having to work in that conflictual situation. But in those situations of conflict, there's one winner and one loser usually. Mm. But in this situation, we, have the, we can have the experience of agreeing that this is a really awful situation, that none of us want to get COVID, none of us want our loved ones to get it or even worse to die. Mm. And so we can have the experience of sharing a common moral universe, and that's unusual. Uh, but it's not absolute, even in the COVID situation. Right, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, that, that's obviously a salient point, that no matter which way you look at it, it affects us, albeit people are going to have different responses. They may not have older loved ones, etc. So how is it that we are this moral community? Like, how does that come about? And is that by virtue of our common humanity in the way this is affecting us? Uh, I think No, I think it's because... We all personally identify with risk to our health or lives. All of us have an, a reaction that that's bad and, so we, and we don't want it. And right. so we share that and I think through that we, uh, we come to see that, especially because this is a highly infectious disease, that I can't be safe unless you're safe. And so we, we agree that no, do I want to keep myself and people I love safe, but I've got to want to keep everybody else safe too, or else I can't achieve. So even what I want, which is to be safe. 
So even from a selfish point of view, <laughs> this, this, well, it's right, true. Yeah, right. this, we've, got to, we've got to understand this community. And there's some interesting stuff happening because, you know, the so-called progressive values, um, which I work a lot on and I don't agree with, a lot, with some of them, some of them I do, some of them I don't, um, is uh, that is very in what we call intense individualism or radical individualism uh, focused and also uh, what I call presentism focused. That they're interested in what does the individual want right now mm. to have happen. I mean, you could take euthanasia, for example. This individual's sick. They don't want to be around right now. They want someone to give them a lethal injection. But you've got to look to the future. What sort of a precedent does that set up? And where does that go? And what does it mean for society? But the people who support it tend not to do that. They also don't look to the past. What can the right. past teach us if we do this? So um, I think that, uh, you know, in COVID, it's interesting because I think it shocked some of the progressives out of their comfort zone for thinking only the individual and only the present matter. Good example was the mayor of New York. Mm. And he got up and he said, my mother is not expendable. You know, right. she's got to have the treatment she needs. And um, what you've got there is you've got the personal identification that I was talking about. You've got the risk that is making people, you know, act to try to prevent that. And you've also, in fact, there got um, a rejection of utilitarianism. He didn't say, oh, well, if it's good, uh, you know, if it's only the, his mother that counts. What he was talking about was, you've got to stay inside. You can't go outside. You can't go to work because if you do, you put my mother at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this, this kind of personal way it affects us, it help, helps to, yeah, helps to yeah. make it very relatable. And if I take this as a, as a positive response because... You know, if the mayor's mother is affected, therefore everyone, you know, if, and if he treats everyone equally, therefore he should also be thinking that other mothers and, you know, and people are affected. So if this is a, a kind of a positive response, what other examples can you call to mind? We've got the, the wonderful positive responses that we always see in these circumstances. I mean, like Maison Sans Frontier mm. and uh, Maison du Monde and Red Cross and people like that, you know, putting them, and healthcare professionals, yeah, all our absolutely. healthcare professionals putting themselves at risk to um, care for others. And one of the things that we know is difficult, and we've looked at this before, uh, is that when as an individual you decide to take on a risk, um, and the harm might not only be to you, but to those you love, especially your immediate family and your children, then it's very hard, for, it's much harder for those people, I think, to take that risk. Yeah, it is. One, one thing that I couldn't help think of the way in which the global crises affect the most vulnerable, but here I'm not only thinking about older people uh, when I say that the most vulnerable, because depending on where you live and you know what your situation is, COVID does affect people differently. In what sense, even though we're all in this together, does it make it difficult when, when we're not all equally affected? So how does, how does ethics play out or ethical decisions play out? In well, you know, there's a principle uh, which Pope Francis is keen on, 
which is called a preferential option in favour of the most vulnerable. Mm. And so that means that when you've got limited things you can do to help, you should first help the most vulnerable, most in need, most deprived people. And, uh, you know, you can see, for example, in the United States, that's simply not happening. I mean, there's a discordance in the, who, for instance, uh, black Americans are dying at a much faster rate than white Americans. Privileged people with their own homes can afford, you know, can self-isolate, they can keep social distance. For people in poverty-stricken areas and large families and that, that's very difficult. And then you turn to the developing countries. I mean, there's a complete tragedy in Peru at yeah. the moment. They're terribly worried about some of the communities in Africa. And so it's not, it's, not, it's not fair and equal. And I think one of the things is that maybe this will make us do is that we can't just look at the immediate tragedy we're dealing with. We have to look behind that and say, why are these people in this very difficult and dangerous situation? And I sometimes use um, a metaphor for ethics that it's not like a football. If I have it and I throw it to you, I, don't, I haven't got responsibilities anymore, ethical responsibilities. It's more like a cake. You can have as many slices as you can make out of the cake and we can all have a slice. Okay. And I think that's true for it. This brings us to levels of decision making. Right. So it's true for government and policy makers. It's true for uh, institutions like hospitals and particularly aged care and nursing home care facilities. And it's true for individuals. And we've all, and you can say in the current circumstances, it's a good example of it's true for the whole planet. Mm. And I think that's also true of climate change. So we can find an analogy uh, about what we have to do as a massive collective, right down to what we have to do as an individual. Mm. And so, you know, I, if I could just say, yeah, sometimes I think that, um, you know, I've dealt with governments and policy makers in this situation before because right at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, we didn't know what was causing that and we were all really scared. And, um, uh, and there were also, the government set up a committee called the National Advisory Committee on AIDS and there was about seven or eight of us on it and I was the ethicist on that committee. And I used to fight with one of the government bureaucrats. He hated me. He used to call me Miss Lawyer. And before he'd make a statement... I can't picture you fighting with anybody, Mark. <laughs> anyway, before he'd make a statement, he'd say, Miss Lawyer won't like this. And then he'd announce something. And I'd, uh, yeah, what they were going to do, you know, what the government was going to do. And I, I can remember shouting at him one day, you're going to go to jail, because I thought it was criminal negligence. And in fact, after the whole thing, a lot, many years later, he was charged with criminal offences, but he wasn't convicted. And in a way, poor man. But he had a saying, and I think this is, this is sort of such a, uh, a political approach to this. And the saying was, we mustn't panic, panic the public. 
So there was, you know, they were keeping things from the public. There wasn't the ethically required transparency. And what that requires is that politicians have to be learned to say, I don't know. I don't know. And they've got to learn to live with uncertainty. And you've got to manage uncertainty ethically. And we're not always used to dealing, uh, would you agree, with, with uncertainty as in the general public, very well either. So we have to be quiet. We have to, as a public, also have pretty good virtues to respond to to how to our ethics well, of uncertainty. You know, that's true, Nick. That if the if if it's ethically required that you disclose to the public, including your uncertainty and, and that you don't know, then you've got to have a public that doesn't punish politicians for doing what you've required them to do. And um, so again, there's a very, very difficult balance there about how do you handle that. Mm. But um, these are all, I mean, ethics decision making is complex. A reporter asked me once, what did I think were the big issues for the future of bioethics? Mm. And without thinking, this is some years ago, I said three things. Uh, Dealing ethically with uncertainty, dealing ethically with complexity and dealing ethically with potentiality of what your, where your decision might take us, you know? And afterwards I thought, why did I say that? I had no idea where it came from. So I've spent the ensuing years trying to work out (laughs) (laughs) what it means, but I find it's really useful to, you know, look at these issues through those three different lenses and see what it tells us. And one of the notions that you, uh, you, you know, and I've heard you say before is that ethics is often uh, it's a matter of, you know, competing, competing sorrows. And there yeah. are obviously quite a yeah. few of those here. What that phrase means, it's a world of competing mm-hmm. sorrows. It means that there is no, no harm option. Whatever you do, you're going to harm somebody. I mean, one of the two of the competing harms we've got with COVID is protection of health or not protecting it, compared with the impact of the economic meltdown because of the ways you're what you're doing to try to protect the health of people, right. and both of them are harms to to different groups of people. Yeah. Some of them to both groups, some to one group some to another group much more than in what, uh, another group, you know. What you have to do is you've got to understand how you've got to structure a decision about what is ethical. Yeah. First thing, good facts are essential for good ethics. Right. So to the extent that you can, you have to try to get the right facts. And, um, you know, in this regard, I mean, that's one of the things where there's a problem with President Trump. Mm. I mean, people are now talking about post-truth ethics. And Trump says he prefers to call them alternative facts. Well, most people would call them lies. Lies. (laughs) So good facts are necessary for good ethics. So you've got to get all the relevant facts. Secondly, you have to see which ethical issues those facts raise. Um, you know, who's har- who will be harmed, how much, uh, you know, what can we do about it, what are the interventions we can take, etc. Mm. Thirdly, you've got to see uh, what values are put in play. So, for example, if you don't give a, a person in an aged care home 
the same treatment as you'd give a young person in the community is that age discrimination. Right. And, uh, and what about, you know, uh, respect for life, justice, equal access, uh, preferences for, uh, in favour of the poor and the vulnerable and people with disabilities, all those things. So you look at what values are right. in play. Now, if you can honour all the values, you can do the right thing for everybody. You haven't got an ethical problem. You do the right thing. Right. But when you've got an ethical problem, and this is what ethics mainly involved with, you can't do the right thing by everybody, and you are, in whatever decision you make, going to allocate harm to somebody. Right. So then you have to, what you have to do is prioritise your values. What is your top value, your second value, etc. And then you act so that you maximise your top value. It might be respect for life. It might be treating the, the most vulnerable people, whatever it might be. And you make that decision accordingly. Mm -hmm. And then the final step, and this is at the heart of what I call doing ethics, is you have to justify the priority you adopted and you have to be able to ethically justify breaching the values that you won't honour. And that's foreseeing that, that you're going to do some harm but not yeah. intending that. I mean, that's that's the kind of risk okay. I'm alluding to, that yeah. some people would say, oh, but, but you're discriminating no matter what way you, you make yeah, this decision. You can't do ethics yeah. like yeah. that. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, that's like saying, well, I've got numbers on a page and I have to add them up. Well, there'll be a, there'll be a total number, so well, it doesn't matter what I say. You know, yeah. let, let's make it 2,061, right. right. yeah. you know. So being able to justify to me sounds, yeah, I mean, on that last point there, sounds like an incredibly important thing. I mean, oh, yes. to be able to say why and on what basis you make a decision yeah. and then that that should stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. depending yeah. on what we hold to yeah. be good and true. And you have to be careful too that you don't wrongfully blame people who mm. don't make the best decision uh, because it's very easy to see often with 2020 hindsight that you could, should have gone the other way. I mean, actually, I th I've been sort of really very pleased with how the Australian public yeah. health and public policy and politicians have dealt with this so far. I mean, we are in so much, you know, so much better position than a lot of countries in the world. It's yeah. been the awful. Context does allow for this being in the position that Australia is, whether it's population, health resources, you know, a, a, a relatively good um, health system in comparison with some of these developing countries. Yeah, but I don't think. Yeah, it, what, yeah, is it, I don't is think it was so much the healthcare okay. system. I think it was much more um, the social. Uh, can, you know, distancing and lockdown, and uh, it, and it was also the job keeper program that right. people, you know, felt they could stay home and still manage to feed their families and that. And uh, uh, there are some questions there about the people who were excluded, like the people who hadn't. Uh, weren't Australian citizens or re or permanent residents and people who were casual workers. So that all comes into it too. Yeah, that's um, a tough one, yeah. Yeah, can you, can you justify that? If yeah. you say what we want to do is protect everybody who's currently in Australia, I think the keeping out of people except for Australian citizens or permanent residents was 
a good decision. I think that can be ethically justified. In fact, you could say it was ethically required. The majority of the infections were coming from, so what do you do? You stop that. Um, and how can we handle that? We handle it by shutting down the borders. I think one of the biggest tragedies, and I've seen this both in Australia, although I think it's better now, uh, and particularly in Canada and especially in Montreal, which is the city I lived in for 40 years, um, nursing homes and aged care facilities. I mean, I've had nightmares of thinking about those old people who were locked down and then the virus was in the establishment. They couldn't get away from it. Um, they they were deprived of having contact with their loved ones and relatives and friends, and then they were dying alone. I mean, I think that's a horror story, absolute horror story. But just recently, I think, it, is it uh, Rockhampton? Yeah, and they were in, a, in an aged care facility, and they acted immediately, and they got out all the people who were... Uh, tested negative, they put them into different facilities and then they distributed the people who were positive so that they were in a single room with their own bathroom. So, you know, they had worked out by that stage what to do. But some of the stories coming out of Montreal, for example, one of them is of a nursing home in a fairly, in a suburb of Montreal that would be you know, equivalent to uh, a western suburb here, but quite quite close to the city, probably about a 15-minute drive right. from the middle inner of the west, city. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah well, I don't know about inner, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How inner are we talking? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and uh, the virus got into the facility. People were being infected, and apparently the staff just fled. Mm. And these old people were left there with no food and no access to anything, and people who were sick and not no clean bed linen or anything. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's just a horror story, an absolute horror story. Margot, what what this has made me think of, and and we could sort of finish up on this point. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, it sounds to me like the way we respond to these situations uh, you know in aged care or similar situations has something to do with how much radical individualism has infected if you will the society or how well we get on board and think of others I, I don't want to oversimplify that but it seems to me that that has something to do with how well we're responding well I think this has made us think of others I think you know the stories are so graphic and they are all resulting and this comes full circle back to what we started with they're all resulting from a risk that uh, confronts all of us. Uh, and I think that makes a difference, that when you, even when you look at that old person, you think in the nursing home, you think, well, that could be my mother, my father, could be my brother, it could be me if I'm older. Um, so I think that personal identification is an incredibly powerful force. And so when we hear of huge you know gross breaches of ethics in ha- in relating to those people and looking after them i think that we are uh traumatized by that and we there's a paper by a very famous doctor ethicist in the united states called dr leon cass mm-hmm. 
and he called it the wisdom of repugnance. And I think what we do, we have an immediate uh, reaction that that is so repugnant what happened to those people that, you know, it's, it's also called in ethics sometimes the yuck factor. Yeah. Yuck, that's so awful what happened to those old people. But you know, Nick, we've got to look wider than just what happened to them. Why were they in that situation and what has happened? And what we've had is a radical disruption in our society. You see, if you went back to the, not so long ago, back to the 1960s, you had women staying at home, creating a house. I mean, when I, where I grew up, and I grew up in Adelaide, we had my great uncle lived with us. My grandmother died in my bed because it was the only bed she could have in the house. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I used to sleep under the dining room table while she was in the house, which was for about three months when she was dying. And all of my uncles and aunts came and stayed. And I went to school with 10 first cousins, you know. Yeah. We just don't have that anymore. We don't have those big extended families where it was all, where it was looked after. And there's good things have come out of that. But there's also, you know, we haven't yet, I feel, worked out a system that can compensate for what we lost. And I think that this COVID-19 has been a major shock mm. to show us what the consequences can be. Um, future problems will also involve the so-called anti-vaxxers, you know, the people who think that vaccines are going to do more harm than good. I mean, there you see that balance again between would we take the harm that we will compulsorily vaccinate at least their kids, even right. if not right. them, uh, but the people who do want to be protected and do want to be vaccinated, but have got conscientious objection to the basis of some of the vaccines, when they're made from cells from human embryos or from aborted fetuses, then they do not want to become complicit in the breach of uh, ethics and breach of conscience that they would feel that would be to take a vaccine that was made in that right. way. That's what we talk about in ethics of like just means and, and yeah. sort of just ends as well. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, the other thing will be, and there's already discussion in the ethics literature on this, uh, that does the country that discovers the vaccine have a priority on it or is there an obligation to share it um, sort of equitably and justly around the world. Mm. And also, what about does, if it's a pharmaceutical company, does it get a patent and does it get royalties from this? And once we deal with the immediate problems that we're currently dealing with, yeah. we're not out of the woods with the ethical problems. You know, if you want a, a job, be an ethicist. Be an ethicist. <laughs> <laughs> Might, uh, we might finish on that note, Margot. I, I really appreciate your, your time and you know, letting me come to your home. Mind you, we're, we're socially distanced. So thanks very much for, for joining us. It's a pleasure. And that was Professor Margaret Somerville talking us through some of the ethics of COVID-19, especially in terms of complex decision-making. We hope you have enjoyed the episode. Join us again next week where we continue to explore the ethical dimensions of the pandemic. My name's Nick Zuma and thanks for listening. See you next week.